everybody with another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. I am so thrilled today to have Dr. Divya Joshi here with us. Um, Dr. Joshi has had a very storied career um, and a very impressive career from being the chief medical officer at Memorial Care Miller Children's and Women's Health Hospital in Long Beach to CEO of Children's Hospital and Statewide Services at OSF. And now she's president of all children's specialty physicians at John Hopkins. Um, and is leading the direction and operations of a 250-plus member physician medical group across the entire continuum of care. Dr. Joshi, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Mina. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Um, one thing I always love to start off with, for especially for our physician leaders, is to start with, you know, what's your healthcare story? What brought you to where you are today? And I'd love for you to think about it in two different ways. One, from a personal perspective, what made you go into medicine yourself, right? What was your experience growing up or with your family or in school that kind of brought you to this passion? Um, and then second, um, you've taken a little bit of a different path. You still see patients, of course, but you're also a physician leader, right? So that's a, a, a very interesting switch for a lot of physicians that go into it from a practicing perspective and then, and then take a different role. So I'd love to understand both of those in terms of if it was there a moment, a story, something that, that drove you for both of those. Yeah, Mina, there certainly is a story that made me go into medicine. Um, we, meaning my parents and I, were traveling on a train through rural India when I was maybe nine years old. And I remember vividly seeing children with uh, hugely bloated bellies and very stick arms and legs standing um, on the side of the train tracks. And I asked my parents, what is wrong with these kids? And my parents told me in age-appropriate language that these children were hungry and sick. And uh, I think at that very moment, I, uh, I gave them all my candy <laughs> that I had on my lap. <laughs> and um, I decided I wanted to do something to make human lives better um, anywhere and in any way I could. And uh, my interest in the biological sciences then led me to medicine. So that's the medicine story. Mm. The second question was, how did I end up moving from being a doctor who sees patients to um, being a leader and in administration or leadership. And this was not planned at all. You know, sometimes in life things happen. And um, I was at the crossroads where I was asked to be a residency director. That is somebody who's responsible for training physicians who want to be pediatricians. Mm -hmm. And I realized I had learned how to be a doctor, but I'd never learned how to be an administrator or a leader. And so I started taking classes in those very topics and I really fell in love with the ability to, instead of focusing on one child or one person at a time, to being able to affect and influence and hopefully better human lives at a much larger scale. And that led me to wanting to be a leader. I also felt, as an aside, that it would be helpful for physicians to have a physician leader. And I know we'll hopefully get to that later on in our conversation, but those are my stories. No, that's fantastic. Do you find that um, practicing day-to-day -day still occasionally um, helps you be a better physician leader in terms of still keeping your finger in, in the thick of it, if you will. Actually, I don't practice anymore. I stopped practicing a few years ago simply because the roles in leadership I had taken on did not allow me to be the type of physician I wanted to be. I um, am by background a pediatric oncologist, so I used to take care of children with cancer and blood disorders. I did not feel that working part-time in this particular specialty was the right thing to do. But part of your question is, is it helpful to be a physician as a leader? And um, I, I think that is helpful. 
Um, I know that a few years ago, there was an article in Harvard Business Review that stated that physician leaders make better leaders. I'm not sure if that's if I would completely echo that statement. However, I do believe that um, there are benefits to that, and we can get into that whenever you would like. If this is the right time. No, I would. Yeah, I would love to get into that yeah. further because one of the things that we've seen, um, we have, you know, at Amplify MD, we're a multi-specialty physician group ourselves, yes. and we notice that the physicians respond so much better, right? They they understand what their medical director is saying to them, and the medical director understands what they're going through, as opposed to why didn't you do this in the um, in the ambiguousness of day-to-day -day clinical care, right? There's a lot of different things that happen that you have to take into account. And as a, as a physician yourself, you understand where they're coming from, I would guess. Yeah, I think, Nina, you hit the nail on the head, absolutely. I think that physicians and physician leaders will speak the same language. So there is an understanding of the clinical condition. Um, not to be underestimated is the fact that a physician leader has been at the bedside of a very ill patient, of a dying patient, of a family that is um, in dismay at whatever might be happening. So we understand the emotional baggage, the emotional weight that physicians or any clinician really bears. And um, I think that also you know, goes to show what we are currently experiencing in burnout. It is a significant burden. So I think there's that compassion, that understanding but maybe a very important point is there is this tension between business and medicine and healthcare is a business, right? There's no, there's no denying that. Um, in order to be able to provide cutting edge care, there is a lot of capital and a lot of expense that is required. There is always this inherent tension between physicians um, with our Hippocratic oath and our ethical stance to do what is right by the patient and it being secondary what the financial cost is. And on the other side, on the administration or leadership or management side is the requirement, uh, if there is no margin, there is no mission. And I think a physician leader ideally, hopefully can straddle both of those worlds and bring them together in a way that those at the bedside who make the ultimate decisions understand both sides. I, think I was going to ask you, because I can imagine that that sometimes can get to be a very hard line to straddle, especially in the economy the way it is today, the last few years, the financial pressures hospitals have. Have you ever found it to be a line that is um, not crossable and, and not able to be bridged? And, and what do you do or what advice do you have for physician leaders maybe facing that today? Maybe their hospital, you know, unfortunately is in the red. Well, you know, what advice would you have for someone in that position? Yeah, that is a a deep and tricky question. Um, I personally have been fortunate enough that while I've been in situations where, for example, a novel treatment for a very rare condition is prohibitively expensive, but is needed, um, we made it work. So I think part of the answer, Nina, is that healthcare makes it work somehow. Um, philanthropy plays a huge role in healthcare when you get to that situation where something is really required but not affordable or difficult to afford. Um, advice I would give is um, always follow the North Star of doing what's right for the patient, yet remain creative. And by creativity, I mean, one can always ask the question, are there other ways of providing a service? Is there another way that we can use fewer resources? Ultimately, maybe the question ends up being, do we have to go out to donors 
whose heart and mission might be aligned with where we need those resources. Hopefully one doesn't get to the point of having to say, this is a service we cannot afford and look around and is there another healthcare system, hospital or clinic setting that can afford to offer those services. Again, offering a certain amount of services is very important for every healthcare system. So one hopes never to get to that point. But I think the advice would be try and find alternatives and always keep your North Star your North Star. Yeah, patient care always has to come first, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, given, given the situation we're in and then the health system that we work in, where do you think the biggest gaps and therefore potentially the biggest opportunities for improvement are? Um, I think it goes without saying that um, quality and safety are paramount and have to be paramount. I think everybody who's listening to this will have had the experience of being in a hospital setting, in a healthcare setting, and information being dropped between people or between locations. Um, so I think healthcare definitely has the opportunity to create a more seamless experience not just from the experiential perspective, but also from the patient safety perspective. Um, speaking of system, I think systemness is a big issue. Um, it's very inconvenient for somebody to go to the primary care doctor, need an x-ray, need to make an appointment, need to go to another building to get the x-ray, then you need to go back to your doctor to get it interpreted. I think we've all lived that, and I think that needs to change. So while healthcare has made tremendous advances in technology and in supportive care, and people survive nowadays with conditions that they would not have survived in just recently, we have a lot to learn by copying non-healthcare industry, who I think are ahead of us in several areas. Who, who are you thinking of in particular here? What, what jumps to mind? Well, if I stay within the healthcare area, I think that the Mayo Clinic, where I had the privilege of spending seven years training, really has figured out the seamlessness of the system. Um, I think they, and maybe it's a secret sauce, they have found a way where a person who enters the system with a certain complaint at the very onset of their journey there has an entire list of providers and services and tests. And at the end of their visit, everything is pulled together for a comprehensive recommendation. And that is just consistently done. I think most systems do it on and off, but I think, I think the Mayo Clinic, just because I know it personally from personal experience, um, really has that down very, very well. There are many other things. I think we need to leverage technology more. And I know, Mina, you're, that's your kind of business and industry. Um, technology, particularly you know, telemedicine or um, at-home monitoring, those are all opportunities that um, we haven't leveraged enough. And another thing that I think is a big opportunity is healthcare really begins in a person's home and in the community, right? Do they have access to good nutrition, to healthy air? Um, do they have jobs? Is there poverty? Those social determinants of health, I feel are to a certain degree part of healthcare, but they aren't really healthcare either. And so I think the biggest opportunity, if you were to ask me if I could do one thing, I think would be for healthcare systems to learn how to collaboratively collaborate and interact with other entities in the community that affect the human being's health. I think that would be wonderful. So you're talking about even just outside of your standard 
EMR, physician's office, um, all of those communications, but bringing in kind of the whole system, like a holistic perspective on that patient. Yes. So in Los Angeles, for example, they found that many people who came to their emergency room over and over and over, the reason they came to the emergency room was they didn't have reliable housing or they had no housing. So many hospitals in certain areas are now buying or renting or leasing space for homeless people to live in. And what they found was that their hospitalization rate decreased. So it is actions like these, or uh, certain areas are food deserts, which means people who live there have no access to healthy food. So why not partner with a farmer's market or with restaurants and their surplus food and bring that to people in a location where they can get access to it without having to drive someplace because they might not have a car. So all of these things that I, as physician, you know, would not spontaneously think of those affect a person's health. And I think that is a big gap. Um, and I wonder if we could work together more with those entities that house or live in communities and provide those services that we don't. I was just going to say, because a lot of that, going back to your earlier comment of straddling the line between clinical and business, right, and, and watching that bottom line, um, it's, it's a tragedy of the commons when you know you should be taking care of that resource, but the cost of taking care of that resource is, is what people fight over, right? Who's going to house the homeless people? Who's going to feed the people that don't have healthy food? Who's going to move the children away or their school away from the highway so they don't get asthma because they're sitting next to you know, exactly. um, commuter traffic all the time? So ha has that been something that you have seen successfully done anywhere? Because quite frankly, it's a frustration of mine because I knew everyone can kind of identify the problems and they can, you know, it, it's easy to say, let's work together. And then you say, okay, who's going to pay the bill? It's, yeah. it's, it's, instead of fighting with your family at dinner to pay the bill, all of us, we all, it's like we all run away at the same time. Yeah. I'm so glad that you, you have some, some experience in this as well. Um, New York City, Baltimore and Boston come to mind, um, projects and programs that I've read about. I can speak in more detail about something we did when I was in Illinois. Um, where we partnered with the school, the public school system, um, as well as with um, farmers markets, as well as with the housing development. And we had a very generous donor provide us with a van and we installed two exam rooms in that van and we could transport that to those housing developments to give immunizations at certain times of the year. And, you know, it's creating such a wraparound system um, where people don't have to go anywhere to get the services they need to succeed, to be able to um, get healthcare 101, you know, how to open a checking account. That's not something healthcare should be doing. But if a family knows how to manage their finances and has access to good food and does not have to live in a polluted area and can get care brought to them if they don't have transportation, that all will influence their health. Um, that does not negate the need for uh, quaternary care hospitals that provide, you know, very sophisticated, highly complex, multidisciplinary care for conditions that are serious. But at the other end of the spectrum, I think we can do a lot as a country, as a nation. Do you believe healthcare is a zero-sum game in the sense that there's winners and losers in terms of the provision of healthcare? Because a lot of what you just talked about is, is unfortunately people tend to look at it as if there's the ER says, if I don't get my patient and the hospital says, if I don't get my patient, that's my DRD that I'm losing, even though for society as a whole, that's a healthier patient, right? So how do you think that that maybe is a mindset that people have consciously or unconsciously and how do we change that? Yeah, 
I think it requires more than just the healthcare system to work on this because I think it is too multifactorial. Um, I think ultimately looking at it from a communitarian perspective and from a legislative perspective, it is in everybody's best interest to have a healthy population, right? Um, so one could argue that the current healthcare reimbursement systems are still very fee-for-service oriented and one could argue that that is a, an incentive to provide more unnecessary care. I can tell you that in my experience, working in multiple states, I have not ever seen that happen. I don't think people go into healthcare for money. I don't think that's the issue. Um, I think the only way we will be able to address this um, is to really look at how we organize and how we compensate healthcare. And that is a whole other podcast. <laughs> Because it is very, very difficult to do. But going back to your original question, are there winners and losers? You know, we are born with certain genes that influence certain uh, conditions we might or might not develop. And until we have developed prenatal gene therapy, I don't think, you know, there will be winners and losers. For that, we for now cannot influence. What we can or should be able to influence, though, is if I am dealt a bad deck of hands, of cards, I can ideally play them wisely and I can optimize what I was born with. And that optimization, I think we are failing at because we know, and the data is very clear, that people of color, women, um, underserved and underrepresented people have worse outcomes than others. And so I think that is not a card they were dealt with. That is something we should be able to address. And so there should not be losers in that respect. And how to address that? I think many systems are working on that. We are, I think it will take time. And I think it will take a lot of collaboration because ultimately a person's life is not just dictated by their healthcare. There are so many other factors and we don't have those connections. Yeah, no, completely. If we step back to your roots for a minute as a pediatrician and not just pediatric oncologist, but pediatrician more broadly, and we think about if you could pick one item that you as a physician or us as a physician community healthcare system have impact over, given everything else that we don't, what is the one thing you think we could do to impact childhood healthcare to, like you said, optimize the cards that the child is dealt um, to kind of have people take away from the podcast and say, whether from a physician perspective or a parent perspective, um, you know, what, what is the one thing you think is the most important to optimize a cards a child is dealt? Because as, to your point, I think you said before, you know, impacting a child's health impacts a whole generation, right? Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That is one of my pet peeves. So important. We can influence one and not more generations. You know, this is an interesting question. I have to think about that a little bit. I would say that um, children with highly complex conditions get outstanding care in the U.S. One of the reasons I moved here. Um, just absolutely top-notch and the whole world would send their child to the U.S. I think if I might say two things, I know you asked for one, I will stretch that to two. The first is preventive care. We have seen nationwide an increase in an anti-vaccination attitude um, that we believe is born out of the fact that vaccines were so successful in er eradicating conditions, right? Polio, measles, mumps, rubella. Um, I would hope that this is such an easy, easy thing to do, to prevent uh, life-threatening conditions and life-limiting conditions, to 
make sure that the children are immunized. And now there are vaccines to prevent cancers in women. So I think that would be one thing, is to really try and get the message out, the scientific background, that vaccinations save lives. And it's a very easy way to do it. The second thing I would say is, I believe that rural healthcare is limping behind a little bit. And so, and, and you know, that's maybe not just specifically for pediatrics, but um, definitely in pediatrics, access to healthcare in rural areas is difficult and getting worse as there is an out-migration of particularly specialty clinicians into larger centers and systems uh, where they can work at another level. So I would say, please try and convince, not convince, show the data to parents. And I think physicians have a responsibility here because parents will trust and listen to their physicians. And physician specialists and primary care physicians, um, if at all possible, um, consider building a professional life um, and fulfillment in rural areas where need is, the need is great. No, and that's, that's um, very well said in terms of the kind of impact you can have from such an early age that will last for, for much longer than your relationship with that one patient might, you might expect it to, right? So yeah. completely understand. Um, and speaking of kind of pediatric specialties, um, if you can give us a little bit of your insight there, I know you, you've worked with that, obviously you, you are one yourself. How much harder is it to get pediatric specialty care than just already pediatric care? And like you said, preventative care is, is kind of under attack here in the country. People will probably don't go for the annual physical as much as they should and get mm -hmm. their vaccinations according to the schedule and all that. But beyond that, um, for specialty care, let's say you don't have um, you know, one of one of the horrific diseases, but let's say you just have asthma, right? Or you have some other condition, you have type one diabetes, mm -hmm. you have other situations where you're trying to find a specialist and you don't live like I do in the Bay Area or like you do, and then major metro areas, right? Um, how, what happens today to children? What are the options that we can give? I know, you know, obviously we talk about telemedicine and virtual care. Mm -hmm. Is that work as well with kids? Because I know with adults, you can interact on, on things they're familiar with Zoom. You know, what do we need to think about um, in terms of delivering care to kids when and where they need, to your point, when you don't have necessarily specialists? Yeah, <clears throat> that, that's a very good point that we are very painfully aware of. Um, particular specialties such as um, childhood neurology um, are very, very difficult to recruit. Pediatric endocrinologists so or diabetes specialists in the epidemic of obesity and diabetes amongst children. I think the answer is multifold. Um, one answer or one way to address this would be to um, centralize particular specialties so that if a child needs to see somebody who's an expert in diabetes, they might likely also need to see a nutritionist, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have them all in one area, i.e. a larger medical campus, um, that would make it a lot easier and the care more multi-centric. Um, Another way you alluded to um, that has been utilized, particularly in the rural setting where those large comprehensive multi-specialty centers might not exist is to, is to leverage technology and use telemedicine. Um, you know, that has worked quite well with, with children. Um, if they are little, you know, the parents speak for them as if, you know, as if you would in a, in a live situation. Um, and teenagers, um, you know, they obviously live in that world. <laughs> so so uh, telemedicine has been successful. We, uh, jumped on board um, in March 2020 when COVID struck and uh, had to set that up uh, in a very short time. And, uh, you know, we had, there was a time when about 30% of our visits were via telemedicine because we could not really do the in-person. 
that's dwindled down to 8%. But again, here we have a very broad and deep um, bench width of, uh, of, of providers and specialty physicians. In other areas, I think centralizing the care, which means more travel for families or utilizing telemedicine is I think the answer. Another answer would be, of course, but that is not in our purview, is to selectively increase the number of trainees in certain areas. And um, you know that, of course, could be a compensation issue. It could be, um, you know, many many reasons people don't want to go into certain specialties. Sub 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 specialization is another problem, right? You have an expert in a very tiny area, but maybe you need somebody who's more broad spectrum. And as people tend to specialize more and more, that's also an issue. No, that makes sense. What are you most excited about that you're working on today at Hopkins and and in your role there? I have been most excited, I think, in um, the work in improving our access. Um, like any other healthcare system, I'm sure, um, there are many problems from the very first time you pick up the phone or go online, if you can, to make an appointment. Um, I think access has been so important um, to many people and to myself because it touches so many consequences, right? It is not just a matter of safety, um, and providing the best care at the right place at the right time. If we don't have access, we can't provide good care. It also has consequences from a patient experience perspective. And if this is a seamless, easy experience, um, then of course the understanding of the recommendations and the participation in the care will be better. And last but definitely not least is the financial impact. Um, every Highly sophisticated hospital needs to depend on a certain revenue to be able to afford the technology and the equipment. And so that has to come from somewhere. So we need a certain service area. So I think access has been a very important work and I'm glad to see we're making improvement, but there's still, <laughs> still a lot to do. Still a lot to do, yeah. What And then on the flip side of that, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you think about that you either wish you were able to change or you wish had turned out differently than what you had expected or started when you started that project. Um, we'd love to understand just as, as a leader struggling, right? It, it's nice to see all the successes, but at the same time, as you know, there's just as many times when it's a failure and it's important to learn lessons from those as well to, so yeah. that for the future. No, absolutely. I think, um, I wouldn't call it failure, but what keeps, nothing really keeps me up at night. I tend to be a very <laughs> <positive> person. <laughs> But things that do worry and concern me um, are how to make the finances neat. Uh, it, it, it's just gotten more and more difficult, and certainly COVID has made it even more acutely complex. But if we look, um, and we is not, you know, it's every healthcare system, every hospital in this country, um, there is a growing dichotomy or chasm between revenues and expenses. And you know, we know that um, there will be in the foreseeable future, the next one to two years, the number I can recall is a 40% increase in the cost of pharmaceuticals. And yes, and the reimbursements are getting squeezed more and more. And I think what is happening is this country, and that's one of the reasons I moved here, this tremendous entrepreneurial innovative energy in this country has led to so many phenomenal innovations and treatments for very, very rare diseases. And so you have very few people affected with the condition that is very expensive, millions for treatment, to treat. 
How is that affordable? And yet it's the right thing to do. That is a big problem that I, in my mind, cannot completely solve. Um, and this is, again, this tension between we are in healthcare to solve physical, emotional suffering. We have the tools, but they are virtually unaffordable. How do we get around that? And I don't have a good answer, but that is what bothers me the most. Yep. And, and it's interesting that you say that because, as you can imagine, you're not the first person, sadly, that I've heard that from yeah. um, <laughs> this day and age. Um, and everyone seems to be in the same boat. And I'm, I'm curious because I've asked this a number of people, what do you think is dry, beyond the pharmaceutical thing, which I hadn't realized that number was so big, but just that deviation of revenues versus costs. Part of it, or at least you know, this last couple of years has been labor issues, right? Nursing issues, physician issues for, mm -hmm. for you know, temporary staffing, all of that. Um, beyond that, do you think there's just a systemic issue? Um, you know, People talk about the fee-for-service system being broken. Um, you need to move to a different model entirely. Um, is that part of it? Is that driving it? Is there other things just endemic to the system that we're not seeing or, yeah. or we're, we're not addressing? Yeah, I, I think, Bina, you said two very important things. The cost of um, paying for talent has always been expensive. I mean, we make a lot of money in healthcare. Physicians make it's very good compensation for understandably difficult work. The COVID and the nursing shortage is also a, a, an issue. Um, you mentioned the um, the cost of resources, such as you know any capital and, and pharmaceuticals. One thing that you haven't mentioned that I think is something that has maybe not been completely understood or addressed. I remember seeing a graph just the other day that looked at the number of preventable disease and preventable death in the U.S. And it is significantly higher than other countries. And the number of chronically ill people is significantly higher than other countries. And if we think about the spectrum of healthcare expenditure, we spend the most at the very beginning of life with very premature infants, and at the very end of life, where a lot of treatments are being given to people who maybe shouldn't be receiving them, maybe don't want them, but don't understand the situation. That is an ethical conversation that requires a lot of sensitivity. But I think that if we had a more robust prevention community health system or mechanism, we would be able to decrease chronic disease. And I will just pick on obesity because obesity leads to a panoply of medical conditions. If we could prevent things, I think we would prevent, we would prevent those social determinants of health. We could prevent um, certain conditions that lead to chronic conditions that lead to a spinning, revolving door of increasing healthcare needs. I think that is a huge dollar number. I don't have a number to quote, but I think that is significant and we could learn from other countries. No, 100%. I mean, just think about, my brother's a bariatric surgeon, so I, I hear stories yeah. from him all the time, um, not just from the physical you know, impact on the patient uh, from that. So you have the cardiovascular, you have the orthopedic, you have everything else, um, in addition to you know the things that you think about normally. Um, so, and every person with a comorbidity knows what we're talking about in the sense of the multiple pills they have to take multiple yeah. times a day and, and all the doctors they have to go to and the specialists, which again, multiple trips to the hospital means days off work or time off work um, and, and more work as you get older, more work and effort for your caregivers as well. And as you said, it, it's a sensitive subject across the board in terms of uh, how you think about how does care for a person for a community seamlessly fit into mm -hmm. 
the care for an individual person and then also the sustainability of the health system overall. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Mila, it occurs to me while you were talking, um, nobody loses, right? If there is a good preventive system, the care providers benefit because they have jobs, the patients benefit because they don't get a chronic condition, and the community and the economy benefit because you have a healthy, thriving workforce. So I think the how is the question. I think we all agree that it's a worthy goal. It's just not easy to understand how to get there. Exactly. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, thank you so much. I know we're coming up on time here, and I really appreciate you taking the morning. Is there anything that I didn't get to? I know we talked about a wide range of subjects, but it's something that anything on top of mind that we didn't get to dive into a little bit this morning. I think one of the question, uh, one of the questions was, what is the future of medicine? And I think, you know, one of I think you are part of part of that. But the way I would say is, healthcare needs to be more connected. We need to use more technology. We need to be more innovative and we need to work closer to home. Um, there is no reason a person can't have, a chronically ill person can't have a bed that is a scale so they don't have to get up to get on the scale. There is no reason that they can't have um, an interface with a nurse practitioner who coordinates everything or a navigator. There is no reason they could not wirelessly transfer, and that happens now, wirelessly transfer some um, vital statistics or comments to a provider team. There is no reason the team couldn't be ex you know, scattered across the globe and work together on a particular condition. And I think this is done in bits and pieces, but I think that is where the future is. Taking it and moving the, the, the tight kind of on-site kind of model to a more remote disparate system that still is working together seamlessly to come up with the same with the yeah. with, you know an efficient solution yeah and i think we need both and we need yeah. both better yeah <laughs> completely agree thank you so much for your time this morning i enjoyed it thank you very much mina <laughs>